Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. Let me just start with this. I'm very painfully aware that Easter is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. So I'm not expecting to come here and tell you anything radically new, right? I really don't expect any kind of mind-blowing, no way, is that what happened? Didn't figure that one out. Um, much like you know, Christmas time, Easter is a big deal in the Christian calendar. For anyone who's been involved in church for a long time, you will know the story. So my hope this morning is just to do two things. The first is just to encourage you. That's it. Just encourage you and basically point us back to Jesus. Because actually, as Daniel was saying, there is so much truth that we now walk in because of the fact that not only did Jesus die, but he rose again. Is that all right? Okay. Um, Do you know, there's something absolutely incredible about the fact that there are four different gospel accounts of Christ's life. Because while they're all divinely inspired and we get a real sense of the life and, and, and ministry of Christ, we also get a bit of an insight into the individual kind of gospel writers, right? So with Matthew, for example, Matthew clearly is this guy who has followed Christ, who's actually listened to him preach, and he's so clearly concerned with what Jesus says. So a lot of what, what Matthew does, he talks about what Jesus spoke about um, in, his, in his three years of ministry. Mark, on the other hand, is clearly trying to just kind of pull the facts together. You know, we, we know that Mark wasn't a first-hand witness necessarily, that he was probably uh, collecting first-hand accounts from different people and collating them together into basically a history. And as we know with Mark, he's fairly abrupt. You know, there's a lot of, suddenly this happened and immediately Christ did this. And, and the same is true of this account. This is the shortest of the, the four accounts that we get. But there is something quite interesting about the four Gospels, because in the same way that we kind of get this unique nature of the Gospel writers, we also get four different accounts, different stories of Christ, in fact. And there are only a certain number of stories that appear in every single Gospel. John seems to be the odd one out often. Um, he seems to have a very different motive, and that's just proclaiming who Christ is. Um, so he's less concerned about the history. But the two events that are consistent, actually there's more than two, but the two events that are consistent in the New Test- Testament, in the, in the four Gospel accounts, are the crucifixion and the events leading up to it, and the resurrection. Right? So we need to pay attention to this, because this really matters. I mean, this is, as we all know, the cornerstone of our faith. You see, the cross and the res- resurrection are utterly inseparable. And even if, in fact, if you go past the Gospels to the letters, you'll see that the apostles, when they begin their ministry, they preach and they naturally throw, flow from one to the other. It's not like one Sunday they turn up and they start preaching about the, you know, the cross, and then the next Sunday they turn up and start preaching about the resurrection. They always flow from one to the next. He was buried, but he was raised. He died, but he's alive. He was delivered over for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. Okay, the two cannot live separately. And what we're going to explore today is kind of what if they did? What if Christ just died and that was the end of the story? Because that would be fairly tragic. None of us should probably be here if that was the case. We'd have no reason to be. So that's what we're going to do. Um, Because this is perhaps, and theologians would often argue, this is the most pivotal moment in Christ's ministry. 
Without this truth, without the fact that Christ was raised from the dead, we may as well go home. For those of you who came for an apologetic, I apologise, this will not be an apologetic. I'm not going to evidence the fact that you know, we believe that this is true. Um, I think it suffice to say that if this is a hoax, then an awful lot of people died to, uh, to tell this little joke. Um, you know, Paul was beheaded, Peter was crucified upside down. I think if you go down the disciples, I think pretty much every single one of them suffered a horrific death, uh, apart from John. He seemed to get away with it. Um, but yeah, this is, you know, I'm not going to do an apologetic. In fact, the, the, new, the gospel or the New Testament doesn't even really use an apologetic language to talk about Christ risen. It's almost like the apostles, they just knew it. They, they were sure of it. They were absolutely 100% positive. So when they talk about the resurrection, they just say it. Christ is alive. That's it. There's no apologetic to their approach. So I'm going to start somewhere quite unusual. I'm going to tell you the story of a film that happens to be one of my favourite films. Has anyone seen The Usual Suspects? Hands up if you've seen The Usual Suspects, right? It is a great film. Have, who's not seen The Usual Suspects? Oh, gosh. <laughs> right, well, this is going to be the biggest spoiler alert for all of you, because I'm going to tell you the very end of the story. So I apologise for that. But there is this will all make sense in, in due time, so bear with me. So the story centres around a petty con artist, and his name is Verbal Kint, right? It's played by Kevin Spacey. And he appears to be, at the beginning of the film, the sole survivor of what is quite a brutal... You know, this all makes sense while I'm telling the story, but... Um, this brutal kind of gun battle on the boat. And it's sort of... Is it covering up some kind of theft? Perhaps it's an assassination? No one really quite, quite knows. And Verbal Kint, as the sole survivor, is taken into custody. And the, the rest of the film is basically him being interrogated by a detective trying to get to the bottom of who was responsible for this grievous crime. Now, Verbal Kint is a cripple. He's pretty stupid. Um, and to be honest, we question throughout the whole film, why is he even there? It doesn't kind of make sense that he was, this, that he was part of this big plot. And the detective, who's very smart, manipulates Kint into basically telling him everything because he knows that actually there is one man behind all of this catastrophic event and that is a man called Kaiser Sose, Kaiser Sose who is effectively a, a, a mystical uh, figure he's, he's a kind of arch enemy he's a super villain if you will um, he's like the who's the opposite to Sherlock Holmes he's like that kind of figure um, and then right at the end of the film where you know, Kim kind of talks through exactly what happened and, and his involvement and they figure out that his best mate this guy called Keaton was actually Kaiser Sose and in the very last scene of the movie, the detective is kind of patting himself on the back. He's really proud of the fact that he's figured it out. He's figured out who Kaiser Soze is, this mysterious figure. And as he's just sitting there, he's let Kint go. And as he's sitting there, he suddenly starts looking at the wall. And these names just start popping out. And he realises in that moment that the story that Verbal Kint has told him is entirely made up. And it's not only just made up, it's made up of literally the bits of paper and things on the wall that were in front of him. He's just made the whole thing up. And then it dawns on him, right? He suddenly realises the truth. And then in the last, if you've seen the movie, and sorry, this is a massive spoiler alert. If you haven't, if you've seen the last uh, uh, scene in the movie, Verbal Kint, the cripple, hobbling away from, from the police room, 
And then slowly but surely, his hobble becomes a walk, and he walks off, and of course he is Kaiser Sozo. And when you find that out, it changes everything. From the very beginning of the film, you suddenly realise that all the dots that you had connected in your head to tell you that this other man was actually Kaiser Sozo were all fictitious, and that this one man, this cripple, this, this useless petty con artist is actually effectively the devil himself. It changes everything. Hopefully you'll figure out why that's a parallel to what we're talking about. Because I'm not trying to say that Christ and verbal kin are in any way connected. Do you understand that? So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do two things. I'm going to tell you the story of the empty tomb, as Mark does. Just very simply, I'm just going to walk us through it. And I'm going to call out some of the things that I think Mark sees as important. But we're also going to look at it in the same light as verbal kint. The verbal kint moment where that story, that scene in the great narrative changes everything that came before. So we're actually going to take a step back and we're going to tell the whole story of the Bible. And in about three weeks when I've finished, we're going to conclude... <laughs> You've got your lunch, right? In three weeks, we're then going to conclude and we're going to look at how this one scene changes the past, changes our present, and changes the future. Okay? So verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were there saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now you just got to bear in mind for a moment who these three women are. Okay? So we, we're very, I think most of us know very clearly who Mary Magdalene is. Um, she was the one who had seven demons in her and Jesus uh, released her from that and we believe um, that Mary was the mother of James the little James, um, one of the disciples and Salome we believe was the mother of James and John so another one of the disciples, the point being is they knew Christ they knew him, they probably followed him, they probably journeyed with him right, this is the man who they believed was the Messiah this is the one who they had all their hopes resting in. They had seen him commit, do miracles. They had heard him preach this amazing new truth. And now, he's dead. And like that, their world has crumbled around them. And so it is in this context that these three women go to the tomb. By the way, when the men are in hiding, how nothing changes. <laughs> But the point being, they are in fear, probably for their lives, right? Because they're, you know, the, the, it is the people who have just condemned Christ and crucified Christ. There is a reason that the disciples are in hiding. And yet these women, we're told it's daylight. They're, it's early in the morning, but it's daylight. People would have seen them. So they're, they're terrified. The world has just been crushed. And it's no real surprise that as they're walking along, kind of, they suddenly go, oh. Who's going to roll the stone away? Because there's this big star. Oh, I didn't think that one through. Like you can just imagine the moment. These poor women. The world had completely collapsed around them. And then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. You know, one of the great things about preparing for a preach is you, you spend a lot more time in a certain passage than you probably would typically. And one of the things that 
I stumbled across as I was preparing for this, and it just never occurred to me before. Um, and actually, I think it speaks to what Mpume brought earlier as well, which is, thank you, it's quite helpful. Um, why, was the, why was the stone rolled away? Anyone? It's not a trick question. Actually, it is. Sorry? He did. He, he, he did rise again. Rise again. That, is, that is why we're here. Good answer. But the point is this, right? Jesus miraculously came out of the cloth that was around him and left it in a pristine place on the tomb where he was buried. A few, a bit of time later, he, he disappeared from the road of, to Emmaus. And then he reappeared in a locked room to his ten disciples. Jesus did not need the stone to be rolled away. Which tells us what? The stone was rolled away for us. So that we could look in. And as Mpume was saying, so the light can flood in. We could observe. These women could see that Christ was no longer there. The tomb was empty, that Christ had risen. He didn't need the tomb to be rolled, sorry, the stone to be rolled away. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Frankly, I don't blame them. If I saw an angel, I would be pretty terrified. Um, it's actually quite common. That's often how it's described in the Bible. When, when people see angels, they're, they're terrified. Um, but again, just bear in mind that they're devastated. They're crushed by Christ's death. They're fearful for their own safety. And now they come face to face with an angel. In fact, there were two there. We're told in the other gospel accounts. And they're told that Christ isn't actually dead, that he's alive, and go see for yourself. He's not there. He is no longer there. I love this. Whenever um, my wife says to me, she's worried, I say to her, oh, don't worry. It does the same thing here. It's great. They're, they're alarmed. And he says, don't be alarmed. So like, thanks, thanks. But then we have this verbal kint moment, right? We have this verbal kint moment. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now there's a couple of things to say about this. Number one, note the order. Like we saw at the beginning. He is dead, but he is alive. The two are always inseparable. But then what happens after that? But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. You know, as Christians, I think we can often sit in awe at the grace of God, right? That by faith alone, sorry, by grace through faith in Christ alone, we have been saved. It's a gift, right? That's an amazing thing. Sometimes we forget the small acts of grace that are scattered throughout the entire Bible. And this is one of those, because let's not forget the last thing that Peter did before Christ died was what? He denied him three times. And the angel is saying, go, go and tell Peter because, I mean, if that was you, put yourself in that position, right? If, 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 if the last thing that you had done before the, the, the person you thought was the Messiah had died was deny him three times, wouldn't you want to take back, wouldn't you want a chance just to say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I didn't, you know, and, and here the angel is saying, it's all right. I know it's hard. It's okay. Because Jesus is coming to you. He's coming for you. It's just such an amazing act of grace. Christ has died. He has risen. Go and tell the disciples. 
I think this is almost like a, a, a bit of a prelude to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Because there is a natural response to hearing that Christ not only died, but he's alive. That is go and tell people. Go and tell people. And so I think there is a natural response for us as Christians to take from this. That is, you know, we have this amazing truth. I mean, this, the testimony that we had this morning is beautiful. When we come into this knowledge that not only did Christ die, historically, if that's a word, probably be credited, history, history, history. Make it, it. it, yeah. Histo- I'm going to do a Daniel and, and make up words. History, history, I can't even say that. Um, historically speaking, we know Christ died. But if he is alive again, then our only natural response is to go and tell people to go and tell people, tell the world. And they went out and fled from the tomb, the trembling, for, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, interestingly, I don't want to get into a debate about whether verse 8 is the last verse of Mark's Gospel, and if you've got your Bible, you, you might notice there's often a footnote that kind of says verses 9 to 16 came in as a later kind of addition to the original text or wasn't it wasn't in early manuscripts but if it is the end if verse 8 is the end what a cliffhanger right and they went out and fled from the tomb trembling in astonishment seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid it is the verbal kid moment literally it's verbal kid walking out and you suddenly realize gosh he was kaiser soze gosh that means that everything that Christ said about himself is true. That sudden, that sudden realisation, and I think in a way, that is what gripped these women. Yes, they were scared. Yes, their world had just been crushed around them. Yes, they were faced by an angel. But I actually think the greatest sense of awe and astonishment is that everything that Christ has said beforehand had come to pass. You know, when, when Clara and I, my wife and I first met, we actually met in lockdown, um, the f- very first week of lockdown, and both of us had had prophetic kind of messages, um, I guess, about each other, so, yeah, and as we kind of got to know each other on the phone, I think the first five, six weeks of our relationship was just on the phone, we didn't even really know what each other looked like, a couple of pictures and that was it, um, but we both had this sense that we were kind of just, it was going to work out. It's hard to explain, but we just knew. We both had a real sense of peace about it. We both believed we'd heard from God. She literally had my name, crazy as it sounds. Um, but we were pretty, pretty convinced. And here's the funny thing. I think when you build up that anticipation, that excitement, then you actually meet for the first time, and then as you sort of date, and you start to get to know each other even better, and you suddenly see each other, and you're like, oh, you're actually really attractive as well. Then something happens. Right? Because I think sometimes, I think sometimes we can dare to believe and hope for something, but almost when we realise it's actually going to happen, we kind of freak out. It's like, no, like I kind of thought it was, but really, no. And I think that's what this moment would have been like for them. I really do. Not only were the promises of God true, but they were far more incredible than they could have ever imagined. As Claire was far more. No, no she was actually, but um, she's at home. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a step back. 
right? So hopefully what we've seen is just some of what Mark calls out in this particular scene of the great narrative, why this scene is so important. And now what I want us to do is take that step back and look how this scene changes everything past, present, and future. So as I said, I'm not kidding. I'm actually going to tell the story of the entire Bible. I will try and keep it to like three or four minutes rather than three weeks, but here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did that in six days. And on the seventh, he rested, and he made man so that man might continue his work. He made Adam and Eve. He made them to be in relationship with himself. They were to be his image bearers, to bring glory to God. But they were disobedient. They ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And unfortunately, because of that disobedience, sin entered the world. They wanted to be like God. And as a result of that, God cast them out from the Garden of Eden. They lived for many years and multiplied, but sin was ever-present, corrupting the earth and all its inhabitants. Things got so bad that God decided to start over. And so, he flooded the earth, destroying everything in it, apart from one man, Noah, and his family, and as we know the story, two of every kind of animal, promising never to flood the earth again. Then, God made a covenant with a man called Abraham, giving him... Uh, the land, or to give him the land around him, and promising him they would become the father of a great nation. God gives him a son, Isaac, and Isaac has further t- 12 sons, and just a few generations later, the people of Israel are formed. So sizable are they in number that the Egyptians fear them, and they actually take them into slavery, into bondage. But God does not leave them there. God sends Moses to free them uh, from their bondage, And despite being freed, they complain and moan for about 40 years in the wilderness before eventually returning to the promised land under a man called Joshua. But their praise of God was short-lived, sadly, and soon they turned their back on God once again. And of course, this is the pattern of the Old Testament, right? God gives in his mercy. God gives generously. And mankind takes and then walks away and says, thanks, I've, I've had my fill. I now want to be my own God. So God gives them the judges, but the Israelites get tired of the judges, and they demand a king. So God gives them Saul, but Saul doesn't really work out, so he replaces Saul with a man called David, a man after God's heart. But even David fell short. He killed a man because he was obsessed with the man's wife. So, but God, uh, God stayed faithful to David, and his son Solomon became king. But things kind of went downhill from there and pretty quickly. And then the people rebelled and Israel became divided into a north and a southern kingdom. But during this time, God again showed his mercy and sent the prophets who warned Israel to turn back to God, saying there'd be dire consequences should they not. But the people killed the prophets. Good work. They ignored their warnings. And they were then conquered by rival nations who forced them out of the promised land and then took them back to a foreign land. Though the people were scattered, God gave them hope through the prophet Jeremiah with the promise of a new covenant, saying that he would return them to the promised land and fill the hearts with his ways. Then after the exile, many of the Jews began to return to Jerusalem and rebuilt a smaller temple. The prophets Malachi and Isaiah pointed to a future king, a Messiah who would restore Israel and bring a new kingdom of peace. And so the people waited and hoped. But God would be silent for 400 years until Christ came, born in a manger, living a perfect life, preaching the good news, and then was crucified. If the story stopped there, think about that for a second. If the story stopped there, if Christ had just died and he didn't rise again, 
Eve's offspring, as we're told, would never have bruised the head of the snake or crushed the head of the snake, as some translations have it. If Christ hadn't risen again, then the promised land would still be somewhere in Canaan. It would just be this historical place where people would still be fighting for this land. In fact, this is why we still see the Jews today fighting for the promised land, because they think it is still a physical land. But it's not. It's a spiritual inheritance that's open to all of us. If Christ hadn't rose again, risen again, the Passover would still be a story about lamb's blood around doors, rather than the story of the lamb, the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. If Christ hadn't risen again, the only bondage God's people would have had been freed from would have been that of the Egyptians, rather than the bondage of sin and death. And if Christ hadn't, been, hadn't risen again, the temple would still be made out of bricks and mortar, rather than made out of flesh and blood in us. If Christ hadn't risen again, we wouldn't have a better judge, a better king, a better prophet. We wouldn't have the Spirit of God inside of us. And Christ wouldn't one day return to judge the living and the dead. No, if Christ hadn't died and rose again, Paul could not have written this, which actually Daniel read earlier. For if, because of one man's trespass, actually no, he didn't read this one earlier, did you? This was a different one. For if, because of one man's trespass, death, reign, death reigned through that one man, much more with those who received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is only because Christ rose that the rest of history makes sense. Because if it wasn't, it would just be a history lesson. But because of this one scene, this one empty tomb, this one moment where Christ is declared to be alive, risen again, no longer here, we can look back at the history of Israel and see so much greater promise than simply what the Old Testament reads if you just without that context. And that, I believe, is why these women were so astonished. Now, I think there are three applications for us, and I want to walk you through each. And as I said before, it's no surprise, it's past, present, and future. First, I think it's about walking in confidence. Okay. Walking in confidence. Why? Because of the empty tomb, because Christ actually fulfills the Old Testament, when we look to the past, to the great story of the Bible, and this great narrative of God's redemptive love for mankind, we come to understand that every single promise that God declares in his word has been fulfilled. And if that doesn't inspire confidence, because we can have a faith in God, a faith in his faithfulness to us, then I don't know what will. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. Okay, Claire and I, uh, just for a vulnerable moment, Claire and I have had a particularly tough eight months, I would say. Um, And it really with the birth of our daughter, who is an amazing blessing, really is an amazing blessing. Um, but it's been a tough season. You know, I don't think there's been a single week where one of us, or Esme, has not been ill, where we haven't been to hospital, where, you know, nothing serious, nothing dramatic. 
But it's just been hard. I lost my job in November. I still don't have a job. Like, it's been a tough, tough season. Really tough season. But despite that, we can look at each other and go, but it's okay, because God has promised us that we will one day end up with him, and every tear will be wiped away. So it is hard, and, and you know, as I promised said earlier, it's not about having an easy life as a Christian. That's not what the Bible ever tells us. But God says that he works all things for our good and for his glory. And we need to hold on to these truths because that's what this book is full of, is truths. And because Christ rose again, we know that these truths are true. Okay? There's that song, I don't know if you've heard it. I have this confidence because I've seen the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of his word being completed in the risen Christ. We need a better prophet, judge, and king, but Christ is the better prophet, judge, and king. The prophet who came to call his people back to God. The judge who lived a perfectly righteous life and will one day judge the living and the dead. The great high priest who, knowing that we couldn't actually pass that test because we were just, you know, with our sinful and that is just our nature, gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice. The perfect king who conquered death and now reigns forever in life. That is... That is the history that we can now hold on to because it's been fulfilled in Christ. Number two, we can walk in confidence because of the present. Um, Sorry, this is the verse that Daniel read earlier. Um, But it's such an important one for us to get our heads around because I think we understand that when you become a Christian, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible tells us. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But we're also told that we walk now with a spirit of power and love and self-control. How true do you feel that to be in your life? It's just an honest question, because I have to admit, I don't always feel that to be true in my life. I don't feel right now like I'm walking in power and love and self-control. Now, as I said, it's been a difficult season for us. But hear this, Romans 8, verse 11. In the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, to his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. If you know Christ as your personal saviour this morning, do not doubt for one second that the Holy Spirit resides in you. And therefore, you can have a confidence because whatever life throws at you, you have a spirit of power and love and self-control. That is what the Bible tells us. We are in Christ. We are hidden in him. And we have his spirit inside of us. And therefore it's impossible for us to be vanquished by death. Full stop. End of story. That's it. We cannot be vanquished by death. This uh, was phrased like this, um, which I love. This was uh, Alistair Begg, if you've heard uh, Alistair Begg preach. He's um, a Scottish guy, I think. He lives in America now. But um, he says, Christ isn't 2,000 years away. Because he rose again, he's here. Uh, This is not some history story. This is the present. This is the present. And finally, we can walk in confidence because of the future. I actually want to read, it's a bit of a long passage, so you'll have to forgive me, but um, I think it's important that we we kind of really grasp this. Uh, And this is from Acts 2. 29 to 33 and if you remember at the beginning of Acts God sends the Holy Spirit and there's fire kind of shooting out of people's heads it's all kind of quite funky and scary 
And Peter stands and confronts the crowd. He actually addresses the crowd and and he kind of gets to the the climax of this little speech. And he says this, Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, the imperfect king, the king who could not complete anything, died and is still dead. But being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So I heard a, a preach a long, long time ago that talked about Peter, the, the embarrassment Peter in a way, right? Because this is the guy who fumbles through, you know, as a disciple of Christ, he's a bit of a fumbler, right? He makes a lot of mistakes, you know, get behind me, Satan, you know, he's kind of reprimanded a few times. The last thing he does before Christ dies is what? Deny Christ three times, you know, this is Peter. And then afterwards, you have Peter who confronts the crowd, who stands up in power of the Holy Spirit and says, this is what happened, Christ is alive. And he's just got this eloquence about him. It's beautiful. And that preach, it talks about how the Holy Spirit changed Peter. But as one of the commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this said, it's it's more than that, actually. It's more than that. And this is what it is. How does he start this? He says, I have this confidence because David died and is still dead. But Christ died and he is alive today. So actually, his confidence isn't just based on the fact that he now has Christ in him. His confidence is in the fact that death has been defeated. Okay, he is, He's looking to the future and saying, no matter what the world throws at me, I have this confidence because Christ died, but he's alive. You know, it's at these moments where I think, the past starts to make sense. And we read things like Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up death forever. And then we see Peter walking in this confidence, exuding this confidence, knowing that that is true, that he has swallowed up death forever. And of course, it's where we get the the beautiful quote in 1 Corinthians, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So not only can we have a promise, sorry, not only can we have confidence because every promise has been fulfilled in Christ. Every promise in God is yes and amen. Not only can we have this confidence because we now have the spirit of God living, dwelling inside of us and we can walk in power and love and self-control. But we can also look to the future and know that death has no grip on us. That even despite all our failings, despite our many, many flaws, despite we, like the people of the Old Testament, like the Israelites, walking away from God, denouncing him time and time and time again, he has declared that we are righteous because of his son Christ, uh, Jesus. Not just because he died, but because he rose again. That is the truth that we now walk in. And we can have a confidence because of it. And let's just end this with the end in Revelation Start to finish. Love doing that. Daniel taught me how to do that. It's great. The end of the story. Verse 17 and 18. 
the first and the last and the living one. And this is Jesus talking. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm just going to read one final thing. It's actually from the, the um, hymn that we sung. Because actually, when you look at the words of that hymn, that is basically this preach, which is beautiful. Jesus, um, lo, Jesus meets us, risen from the tomb. Lovely he greets us, scatters fear and gloom. Let the church with gladness, hymns of triumph sing. For her Lord now reigneth, death has lost its sting. Hallelujah.